Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. Sorry about the delay this week. Uh, I was in the process of moving to a new apartment, but hopefully I should be back on schedule now that I'm fully moved in. So this week, we are going to discuss military technology, strategy, general structure, just as a preparation due to this being, you know, a war. For a little background, I was always a military history kid. I was big into World War II when I was like in middle school, early high school, fell into about this time period and college, I would say, especially due to one dude that we're going we're gonna, to well, meet slash talk about later. So to start, we're going to talk about the general structure of how most European militaries functioned. By the Renaissance, the militaries of Europe had mostly moved away from levies and more towards sort of mercenaries, especially in the Italian peninsula. Uh, levies, if for those of you who don't know, were basically, in medieval times, a king, lord, whatever, would call upon his population to serve in campaigns whether they be defensive, offensive, etc. They generally made up the bulk of an army. Knights would be a smaller part. It was not professionally trained. It was more a group of militia peasants, effectively. During the Renaissance period, mercenaries became more and more popular and relevant in militaries. So by, by that time period, most armies were made up of mercenaries of some flavor. One effect of mercenaries becoming bigger was that they became more professional. While not professional by sort of today's standards, due to them wanting to make money, they would generally train higher, they'd have better gear on average. And they're in it for money, so the more skill you could have, the more money you could barter for your services, effectively. Especially if you were a higher-end commander, and you could offer yourself at higher higher prices to various lords and kings, and etc. That led to war becoming less of a, less of a, some sort of calling upon mass groups of men and to fight for you. It more became a it more became a way to make money for mercenaries and various city-states and countries in Europe. It, it also led to a lot of destruction due to mercenaries not caring about local populations due to them not really being from there, so they didn't have any... They weren't going back there by any means, so why would they care about looting and pillaging? This led to a couple developments in philosophical and military thought. Some people, like Machiavelli, as you will know, he's the guy who, who wrote The Prince, and the whole... Is better to be feared than loved, which is wrong and not exactly what he said, but not the purview of this podcast. One of his things he wrote about was he did not trust mercenaries due to the fact that, one, they were not loyal to whatever side they were on. They were only loyal to whoever paid them the most money. So, in theory, the enemy side could bribe your forces and they could switch sides. That was sort of, re- that was remedied by many ar- commanders and lords and stuff would not hire armies of mercenaries, but they'd hire, like, companies. So it's like, you know couple hundred to a thousand men. So one company decided to defect. It wasn't as big a loss as, say, if you hired a couple thousand men and they defected. And another fun, funny little fact was many mercenaries didn't like to fight due to many of them were in that end to make money, but also fighting meant potentially risking your life and dying. So there was a small market of, the, of mercenaries who you could pay to not fight, especially the more skilled ones, which I always find a little funny of you train to become a professional soldier, yet you don't want to fight. I mean, it makes sense, but I just find it a little funny. Another structural change to the military was that knights and heavy cavalry were on the downturn or not as relevant as they were before. That meant that infantry became the more dominant force during the 16th and 17th century, which is where the Thirty Years' War takes place in. The reason why cavalry became less relevant was, one, guns came into co- more common usage. Guns had the ability at close range to pierce through full armor. So by this point, most cavalry had abandoned the use of heavy plate armor, as we imagine nice to have, to more of a breastplate, as if you've ever seen any images of like uh, Spanish conquistadors and stuff like that, 
that armor became more popular due to it still offering some protection against like swords and stuff like that, but offering more mobility. The other thing that guns brought to the battlefield was guns like crossbows before were much easier to train a mass number of men to use. For example, training a bowman would take years and years of of muscle building, etc. You could spend a couple weeks training a basic soldier how to use a gun. The numbers would weigh out. You don't you don't want to charge into a hail of gunfire even if they were inaccurate. The second thing that came along with guns was mass pike formations. Pikes are basically two-handed, generally somewhere between like 9 to 12 feet long spears, effectively, that in a mass formation were very scary, to animals at least. Uh, I'll post images of a pike formation on my website for reference. Animals aren't going to charge into a group of spikes, especially horses. They still are creatures, and they see a, a row of spikes and go, no, 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 that's dangerous, I don't want to do that. So cavalry couldn't charge into heavily armed, armored and armed formations of infantry, on average. Some of them could sometimes. So the front, frontal cavalry charge was generally not as useful, aside from a few exceptions. For those of you in the know, the winged Tassars, aka they were a, a Polish heavy cavalry unit, were still being used in their full force during the 17th century to actually... Uh, Effective use during during the uh, Swedish and Polish wars, but for the most part, cavalry became more of a harassing and, and sort of scouting force. They could charge flanks, engage enemy cavalry to protect to sort of protect the flanks of their army. But infantry became the dominant force in Europe. Cavalry was still relevant, just not as dominant as they were before. The unintended effect of the growing mercenary influence in Europe was many nations were starting to recognize the need for a larger and more permanent army to, to wage war with. So militaries became less focused on lords having their own individual holds and their own individual forces, and more on the state controlling the army and giving, and giving out command to various lords to take over. It was a step towards centralizing the state, which in the medieval period was not a common thing. The downside of a growing army was that, in many cases, they were very slow to move. One thing that was a common factor in most armies was camp followers. Camp followers were a mix of, were generally civilians, who could be like the wives of soldiers, especially mercenaries, prostitutes, because men on a campaign, or they're still men, they still have needs. And those civilians would generally do things like cook food, help carry supplies... So the soldiers didn't necessarily carry all their supplies on them. They would be carried by a large band of band of civilians, which was slowed on army progress because they had to keep keep them defended or they would lose their supplies, assuming they weren't just living off the land, which in many cases armies were. Two pieces of technology became, well, technically one, but I'm splitting them up into two for the purpose of this. Two pieces of technology became super relevant during this time period. The first technology was firearms. So firearms changed the European battlefields. Well, not necessarily as common as, say, piked infantry would be. They became a growing presence during the 16th and 17th century in terms of the amount of guns in an army. The European nations realized that while guns were inherently sort of inaccurate due to, due to bullets not being standardized and, and the barrels were smooth... Uh, for, for people who, who don't know anything about guns, uh, most guns, when you fire them nowadays, their barrels are called the rifled. So when you fire a bullet, the, the bullet spins in the chamber, therefore giving it more accuracy. So guns were inaccurate, but massed fire, like we see in every sort of like, you know, Napoleonic era, Revolutionary War sort of era, was was effective. And keep in mind that there's still a slow, a slow rate of fire. Uh, firing two to three shots a minute was considered fairly fast. It was a whole process. 
I'll try and find a video or something of a re- what reloading would look like. By the time our war started, flintlocks had become the weapon of choice for most European armies if they had the money. Flintlocks are what basically what we know as the musket. Fun fact, why, if you ever like what, wonder why, oh, why in the 18th century didn't, did most armies have colorful uniforms? It's because when the battlefield's full of smoke from gunfire, you need to be able to see what color you were. So if you saw, oh, I'm, so if your side wore blue and you fired, you could see, oh, that, they, those guys are blue and those guys are red, etc. That died out as soon as smokeless powder, smokeless gunpowder came out, but that's way beyond the scope of this. The second one that's associated with this, but artillery, aka cannons, became lighter and more mobile during the 17th century. While not standardized, in the future I will cover an episode about changes later in the war, but for now we're talking about the early war. Artillery became more mobile. While they still needed to be hauled by a couple horses, they could be used on the battlefield, although once they were placed, it was hard to move them in an active battle, especially if enemies were approaching. The major change that artillery brought to Europe was less on the battlefield and more on sieges and taking cities and fortresses. Previously, stone was the common way to build cities and fortresses for defenses. But the problem is cannons could burst through stone more easily. Especially in the, in the Italian wars and the, conf- the various conflicts between the city-states in the, in the Italian peninsula, many city-states realized that the best way to fight against cannons was to use earthworks. So sort of a open wall set up and then you, you would fill it full of packed down earth. It would break far less easily compared to stone. So what happened was there became an arms race between better defenses and increasing the capabilities and the damage of, of artillery and cannons. The main issue that came up that sort of was noted, and or at least from our perspective that we would note, was there was no standardization of weight and size. So when we so if you ever hear like a twelve pounder, twenty four pounder, that wasn't really a thing. There was no standardized cast or molds into in, in, a, in a large industrial sense. So cannons weren't all the same. So two cannons could be a similar size, but not be the exact same. And that and that became hard harder to make ammo that could roughly fit snugly into the barrel, which would make them less accurate. The last thing that I want to talk about is how, what were the tactics that were used on the battlefields? How did troops fight? That sort of deal. Tactics, to a certain extent, went back to maybe the we say the Romans that older time period, but tactics became more about mass infantry formations clashing with cavalry acting as flanking as pressures of the flank and attacking routing units. Cavalry could also act as emergency backup in case of breaches in the line. One thing that, in my experience, people don't understand about tactics, what causes the formation to break, what caused you to win, it wasn't necessarily about causing casualties. In many cases, especially, you know, if you go back to like the Roman period or in the ancient worlds, most casualties were not done while actively fighting. Most casualties were done when enemies were running or retreating or running from battle. They weren't really fighting back. They were running. It made it much easier, made it much easier to kill a large amount of troops. So the key to winning a mass infantry fight was discipline and morale. Morale, for those of you who aren't don't know military lingo, is how high spirited your men are, how willing are they to fight. The more they're willing to fight, the less the less likely they're willing to break. A well disciplined and high in morale unit is less likely to break and therefore win a, a mass fight. It mainly came down to which formation would lose the morale and their discipline first. And the mainly feared unit of this time period was called the Spanish Tercio. 
This formation, like I said, it's Spanish, but it's spread throughout Europe and especially many of the uh, throughout many of the Habsburg holdings. Was a unit that was composed of mix of pikes. And, and firearms. The formation had a hollow square, which was there'd be a, a unit of pikes sort of in the center, and on the outside you'd have you'd have the firearm troops that could act as skirmishers and, and keeping away range units. One of the downsides of mass pike formations was pike formations lack the protection from shield and the like to b- block arrows, crossbows, bullets. So they were open targets to range fire. Usually cavalry could use to keep skirmishers from engaging them. But the Tertio dealt with this by putting firearm troops on the outside. They could deal with other ranged fire. This was actually an effective example of combined arms was sort of the idea that multiple forms of y- units could work together. In a modern sense, it's, you know, it's tanks, infantry, and, and aircraft working together. If they work together effectively, they are more than some other parts. But in our context, the main sort of combined arms would be range troops, polearm infantry, and cavalry. This formation was a good mix of ranged and pike, although the pike was the more central part of it. So... In a battle, the Tercio would advance up the firearm troops with skirmish against enemy range, range combatants and other formations, hoping to see if they could cause them to break. And as two formations would near each other, all the range units would either go behind or inside the square, and then the pikes would charge into the front lines and engage in melee combat. The other thing that pikes did is they countered cavalry. So if a cav- if they saw a cavalry charge coming, the firearm troops could hide in the center of the square and the pikes could repulse the cavalry attack, which meant cavalry was less effective against these types of formations. This unit was feared because it was well known for its high discipline, high effectiveness on the battlefield. Many of them were also very professional soldiers whose main job was fighting, as stated in the sort of professional thing. This formation became outdated by the mid-17th century, and we will cover that when we get to that point in this war, because, as I will describe at that point, a new formation will come into being that will replace that. I just want to say thank you guys, especially after the the delay in this episode. If you want to contact me or just see more news updates, go to 3decadesoftragedy.com, the Facebook page of the same name. Email me at 3, as in the number 3, D-E-C-O-T, at gmail.com. I have vacation from work next week, so... Hopefully, if it works out, I should be able to get another episode out in sort of the, in the next couple in the next couple weeks. So we should have two episodes. So within within three weeks. And finally, thank you all for being patient with this setup. I know some of you who know all this stuff, and you're just waiting for me to start the war. So next week we cover the defenestration of Prague, which starts this whole which starts the whole big scandal that we call the Thirty Years' War. So see you guys next time.